Please join me as I open us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have week after week to gather here in a safe place to learn from your word. Lord, we're reminded by the news and through other publications that there are countless Christians around the world who, if they engaged in what we're doing right now, would be risking their lives. So we pray for our brothers and sisters who are threatened and hurting. And Lord, we pray that we won't um, grow soft, so to speak, in terms of our own Christian walk. Lord, we have so many privileges, so many luxuries. I just pray that you will help continually stir up in us a desire to be more holy and be more godly and be more devoted to serving you. And Lord, as we begin talking this morning in the final chapter of the book of Hebrews, I pray that you will give us ears to hear. Lord, I pray that the words that I say will go beyond how I feel and that you will use them to illuminate truth. I pray, Lord, that the things that we hear about, we won't tune out because of familiarity, but we'll Seriously consider how these things apply to our lives individually and collectively as the body of Christ here at Lakeside. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would oversee everything that occurs here, that you would bring glory and honor to yourself, and that because of our time together, we would be more like the Savior. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. As I indicated... I am going to teach this morning, and this morning I wrote it down in my um, notes as something of a milestone. Today we are starting the final chapter of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13. I, I've said this before, but I went back in my notes again because I was curious, and my very first lesson on Hebrews, the introduction of the book, was on March 23rd, 2008. And a lot has happened over the last seven, almost eight years that has slowed my progress. But I think it's reasonable to assume that we'll finish before March 23rd, 2016, meaning it will have taken less than eight years to get through the material. But we are today going to be starting in the final chapter, and we have a lot of powerful truth still to cover in this book. There are verses in Hebrews chapter 13 that you're familiar with. Perhaps there are a few verses that you haven't thought about before. But the book of Hebrews is a unit, and it's a powerful book. The first ten chapters really were rich with doctrine. And when I reference chapters, just as a reminder, when the book of Hebrews was written, there were no chapters and verses. It was just a letter. Those were added later to make studying the Bible a little bit easier, but the chapters and verses aren't inspired. But at times, the chapters and divisions are very good. There are a few times where the people who did it, perhaps they could have made other choices. But for our purposes, the first 10 chapters were heavy in doctrine. And then chapter 11 was really that catalog of all of these people who had already applied doctrine in their life in the Old Testament. And chapter 12 is urging us, to take the doctrine that we've been studying and to live a certain way. And chapter 13 builds on that. All of the doctrine of the first 10 chapters and the examples of chapter 11 really are designed to motivate us to live a certain way. If you have Hebrews open, I think 
Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 really provide a summary of the focus of the entire book. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Everything that we're being taught is telling us, fix your eyes on Jesus. We live in a sin-tainted world, in sin-tainted bodies, and we have a lot of hurdles to overcome to be like Christ. But the key to all of it is to constantly remember his example, remember who he is, what he's done, and for us, everything is designed to tell us, don't let anything distract you from Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him. If things are going well, focus on Jesus. If things are going poorly, focus on Jesus. Only Jesus is salvation. Only Jesus is the hope. It's not rituals. It's not anything else. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And the end of chapter 12, which we covered previously, really is a reminder to us that the earth is not our home, that our hope is not found here. Our hope is in heaven. We will be in heaven with God. We'll be surrounded by angels. We'll be surrounded by all the other believers. We will experience incredible truths. And how chapter 12 ends is critical for the final exhortations of chapter 13. The ending of 12 provides the transition for us, which really introduces why is chapter 13 in this book. Now, I covered verses 28 and 29 of chapter 12 the last time we talked, and my focus was that we should live life with gratitude. Verses 28 and 29 say this, Therefore, meaning in light of what he's just taught about eternity and where our hope is, therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken... Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. No matter what's going on in the world, we have hope. Nothing can shake us away. It's reminiscent of the imagery of the scriptures where God holds us and nothing can snatch us out of his hand. And we didn't earn this gift, we receive it. God gave it to us. It truly is a gift. And because of this reality, because of what has happened, because we have this salvation given to us as a gift from God, we're supposed to show gratitude. We're supposed to live thankfully. And by doing this, we live lives pleasing to God, a life of service. And ultimately... Christians should live with gratitude. Christians should live a certain way. But this really is the transition. I think chapter 13 is giving us practical instruction on how we live that life of service. We should certainly think of ourselves at every moment of every day as worshiping God. Now, I recognize we don't. We fall short. We have days where we seem who have lost our way, where we have been overwhelmed by things and we get distracted and there are days where we sin and we are not looking to the Lord. 
But the focus of this book and the focus of what we're covering in chapter 13 is the idea that worship doesn't occur on Sunday morning between the hours of 9 and 12. Certainly, we're here and we call it the worship service and we sometimes refer to this as a worship center and we will talk about our singing as worship to the Lord. This is really, though, focusing on all of the other time when we're not here. Now, what we're going to talk about this morning as an example of service, of an example of worshiping the Lord, some of it does take place on Sunday morning. Some of it takes place outside of this. But the focus is us living every aspect of our lives as an act of worship. We were talking to Christine the other night in the car, and we were explaining to her what 24-7 meant and how you would understand it. And then sometimes you say 24-7, 365, and explaining to her this adds in all of this. Debbie pointed out it really should be 24-7-52. That's actually the next in the progression, but that's a math person talking. So... um, but the point is, that that's what's talked about here. That, that's what we're dealing with this morning. This is every day, every waking moment, this should characterize us. Our entire lives should be a living sacrifice to the God who has given us all that we need for salvation. I think what we're going to be studying in chapter 13 is summarized by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God... To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's what chapter 13 is all about. It's showing us what a spiritual service of worship looks like. It's showing us how to make our bodies a living and acceptable sacrifice. If you're doing the things set forth in chapter 13 that we're going to begin covering, it means a couple things. Number one, it means you're becoming a doer of the word and not merely a hearer always a danger for us in an an environment where we are inundated with deep truth week by week. We're not supposed to just learn truth. We're supposed to live truth. But it also would be an indication if you're complying with what's in chapter 13 that you're living your life as an act of worship. And I think in our lucid moments, in our sane moments, in our moments when we truly understand what we are before a holy God, that's all we want. We want to live a life pleasing to God. So my encouragement for you as we begin today to start with chapter 13 is to make this a process of continual self-examination. Make it your goal not just to wish with me that Joe would finish chapter 13 as quickly as possible so we can finally get out of Hebrews, but recognize that everything that has occurred is designed to build up so that we understand what's happening here. All of the teaching over the last umpteen years and the sermons that I've preached when I've gone through in church, all of this is designed to help us worship the Lord, and that's what we're going to be focused on. And today, as we begin, we're only going to cover one verse. There's a lot in this one verse. We're going to look at chapter 13, verse 1. And it deals with the issue of love. And so... As a simple breakdown of the material, I'm just going to give you three principles of worship through love. Three principles of worship through love. Let me just read to you what's that simple verse at the beginning of chapter 13. It says this, 
Let love of the brethren continue. Let love of the brethren continue. It's a very simple phrase, but it's rich with truth. So from this phrase, we're going to see three principles of worship through love. And the first principle is this. Love should already exist. Love should already exist. I'm going to try and develop what I'm even talking about here. But looking at the phraseology, the translations in English are very similar. Different translations have slightly different wording, but it's the same idea, the same principle. This is not a complicated verse for the translators to deal with. And if you look a little more closely, and we are going to look at this a lot this morning, what you'll notice is we do not have a command here to begin loving. It doesn't tell us to start loving the brethren. Rather, the exhortation that's being given here assumes that the love that's being talked about has already existed. And I'll talk to you in a moment why the author can say that for the church that he's writing to. But it should be the case with us as well. Let love of the brethren continue. The idea being conveyed is that there's a certain type of love that is already manifesting itself in the body of Christ. This isn't a new something to seek out, to find something. In other words, it's an expression of the idea that if you know Jesus Christ, this is part and parcel of knowing him. Now, in this context, the word translated love is a particular derivative. The word in Greek that we translate in this version translates love of the brethren. Some translate it brotherly love. It is a single word. And based on this, I think you know, if if you don't think you know Greek, you know Greek here. So I'm going to let you guess which word it is. The city of brotherly love is... That's it. That's the word in Greek. That's it. It's the reason it's the city of brotherly love, because that's what it means. That's the word in the form here. And so this isn't talking about generic love. This isn't talking about romantic love or erotic love. This is, in a very real sense, talking about familial love. The type of love that should exist naturally amongst family members. I think it's not a stretch to say that amongst believers, we are truly supposed to see each other's family. The scripture says we're family. That is the theological reality that we have. But it should be a natural extension of having come to Christ, having been born again, that you actually see other Christians differently. This type of love is not driven by a person's attractiveness. It's not driven by what someone can do for us or what someone has done for us. It's the natural outgrowth of the mere fact that we exist in the same family. And as you look at the end of chapter 12, how did we become a part of that family? God did it. We received it. We became a part of the family because God put us there. And this is what should be the natural outgrowth of God's work in our lives. 
I did not think this way when I started studying the book of Hebrews, but obviously I've been inundated with this book for years, and the parallels between what the believers were going through at the time of Hebrews and our own current society are much more prevalent than I thought when I began studying this book. The lives of those believers were at times hard in relation to their faith. They were suffering. I'm going to reference later some of the examples, but they were suffering. They had endured a lot. They had a government that was hostile to their existence. They had religious environment that was hostile to their circumstances. And as we live in an increasingly hostile world, I think we've come to realize, and if you haven't realized this yet, I think you've been asleep at the wheel, we true Bible-believing Christians are the minority. I sometimes see people that say, well, we're the majority in America. And it's like, no, you've got the wrong we. People that believe what we believe, we've always been the minority. We just didn't realize it. Because culturally, there was a time when other people used our words. They didn't necessarily believe it, but they at least used the same language. What we're now seeing is the clear demarcation between those who believe solely in the sufficiency of Scripture and salvation through Jesus Christ and Him alone, and people who pay lip service to those same principles. The point being, more and more and more, we're going to be viewed in a negative light. And that's okay. They view Jesus in a negative light, they're going to view us in a negative light. In those contexts, we need some people that we can count on. This isn't the reason we love, this is an explanation of why God gave us this love in the first place. Because the command here isn't to work this up. Rather, it's to fan into flame something that is already existing. (laughs) Scriptures over and over talk about this principle. I've already referenced Romans 12. There's some parallels here, but in Romans 12, 10, it says this, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. This is the assumed state of Christianity. This is what we're supposed to do. I think it's interesting, if we are doing what this verse assumes we're already doing, I think it's evangelistic. Jesus said how we relate to one another is going to say something to the entire world. In John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, it says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It really places brotherly love in a context. Every one of us is supposed to already do this. It's supposed to be a given. Jesus was certainly commanding it. Hebrews chapter 13 is assuming that people have already started living this command. And if we do this, the world will look at us in a different way. In fact, according to the scriptures, brotherly love is so much a part of being a Christian that if this doesn't exist, then your profession to be in Christ is suspect. In 1 John 3, 14 and 15, it says this, and again, I realize I'm not giving you much time to turn there, but you can write down the verse references. I'm going to read them, but... You can write them down yourself. 
1 John 3, 14 and 15, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This isn't talking, of course, about literally killing him. It's just talking about the hatred of the heart. 1 John 4.20, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You could chew on that for a while. I've seen many times, and my experiences are probably not completely unique. Some of you have experienced this. Some of you have been Christians longer than I've been alive. You may have seen things differently. Or you may have seen illustrations of this, I mean, in a, in a slightly different way. But it's always suspect when somebody says, yes, I'm a Christian, and they haven't been to church forever. They don't have any Christian friends. They don't fellowship with anyone else. Why? Because going to church saves you? Of course not. But according to the scriptures, you should have a natural love for other believers. And if you don't have that love, and you can see, we can see each other. We all look around, we see each other. If we don't love each other, according to the scriptures, we don't really love God. So the first thing I want you to do as you're thinking through this morning is just search your heart. Do you love other Christians? Now, I'm going to talk in a minute about what love is because our society is so distorted on love. And I realize that at a given moment, some people annoy us, even Christians. And sometimes some Christians are preferred to others. But what we're talking about here is not emotionalism. It's talking about a life. Do you love the people around you at Lakeside? Again, this isn't primarily about how you feel, it's how you act towards other people in the body of Christ. So the first challenge to you is, if you don't have love at all towards other people here, then you've got to start evaluating where is your heart. So the first principle of worship through love is that love should already exist. If you know Christ, it should already exist. Secondly, love should already be manifested Love should already be manifested. Unless you came to faith this morning, there should be an ability for you to look through the newsreel of your life and find moments where you have acted out of love and in love towards other people in the body of Christ. Again, it all comes back to this simple verse. Let love of the brethren continue. Love should be active. Love should be seen. Again, this isn't just about the warm, fuzzy feeling you have inside. In fact, it's very little of it was related to that. Our society equates love with emotions. Go through the card aisle. It's hard to buy a birthday card for my wife because we're not sappy people. And you read these things and it's like, really? Nobody talks that way. This is stupid. And I apologize if you write Christmas cards, but... Um, Actually, Christmas cards are some of the best because normally they just stick scripture in. But in terms of other stuff, everybody wants to conjure up a feeling, want to feel a certain way. If you've lived very long, you recognize life isn't about doing things when you feel like it. 
not about your emotions. It's about acting anyway. What's encouraged here of let the love of the brethren continue has nothing to do with just your warm, fuzzy feelings. Rather, this is focused on tangible, practical acts of love that have been placed into service. Now, what we understand if we've been here through this study of Hebrews is that the writer of Hebrews has already acknowledged that the people receiving this letter were walking the walk. So, for example, in Hebrews 6.10, Hebrews 6.10, after there was a strong, powerful warning about apostasy, a frightening warning about apostasy and the dangers of it, he says, For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. In other words, the people receiving this letter who are being given this exhortation, let love of the brethren continue, the writer has already seen this in their lives. More than that, the writer is saying he knows God's seen it. The writer places one of the reasons that we come to church in this context. The primary reason that we come to church, certainly we want to grow in our own knowledge, but it's not about me. not about you it's about others hebrews 10 23 and 24 says this let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds the reason we don't forsake the gathering together with other believers we don't forsake the assembling with believers is because we've got to come together and encourage one another about how to do good works not to earn our salvation Rather, this is an indicative of that this is some of those good works prepared beforehand by God for us to walk in them. I don't have it in my notes. That's from Ephesians. But we're supposed to be encouraging each other to live more godly and tangible ways. Now, further down in chapter 10, at verses 32 and 34, part of the way that they showed brotherly love, the type of love that should continue, is that when other Christians were hurting, they stepped in and responded. Verse 32 of chapter 10 is hearkening back to a time that the writer knew about when the believers had exercised their faith. But remember the former days when, after being enlightening, enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, we'll come back to that in verse 2, and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. In other words, when things had gotten hard, they didn't run away from their brothers and sisters who were suffering, they identified with them. That meant something different at that time because just by associating with people, you could wind up in jail yourself. And yet they had seen brothers and sisters, some of them who had been unjustly accused, unjustly imprisoned, and they weren't ashamed of it. They went and stood with them. I'm sure in those moments, one of the emotions they might have had was fear, and yet their love overcame their emotions. 
In fact, they turned fear to joy. They joyfully, hey, you're taking all my property for knowing Christ? Here you go. These believers stood by one another. They had not run when trouble came. They had stood shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, bearing one another's burdens. Here's the bottom line. As we are exhibiting brotherly love in the body of Christ, it should be something other than just an emotional feeling that we have. I like these people. They're nice. No, love is in action. It's taking steps to deal with life and help one another in a tangible and practical way. And when you are engaging in that type of love, the world takes notice. I'm not going to read it, but 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul's commending a church and saying, look, everybody else sees your love. It's one thing to say you love someone. It's another thing to show them that you love them. Let love of the brethren continue. Again, as we step back and we start examining our lives and as we're looking in the mirror and we're not looking to see how are other people measuring up, but we're saying, Lord, help me see how I measure up. If you know Christ, there should be some examples in your life of times when you ministered to others in tangible ways. Certainly, it could be something as simple as praying for one another. When you take seriously a prayer request that you hear from a brother and sister in Christ and you remember to pray for it, that is showing brotherly love. Do that more. Sometimes it does have to do with helping brothers and sisters who are going through trials. When you go and visit somebody in the hospital because you know they're hurting, or you go sit with somebody that's going through chemotherapy, or you give somebody a ride to the doctor because you know they're going to get a bad diagnosis. All of these things are tangible acts, and what the writer is saying is that should already be present here. And if you're doing it, keep doing it. The Apostle Paul, that, that one verse from Thessalonians that I just referenced, Paul said, you're doing all these things, then he said, excel still more. That's really sort of the exhortation of 13.1. Love should already be manifested in your life. You should already have some evidence of how you treat other Christians in a loving way. Keep doing that. Love certainly can be shown through tangible help with financial needs. Romans 12, 13 talks about contributing to the needs of the saints. James has a strong admonition. in James 2, 15 and 16. But he's basically saying, look, if you see a brother or sister who needs something, I'll add some color to his language. It's an abomination if you just say, I'll pray for you. And you had the ability in your pocket to help them. Again, it's not asking you to do what you can't do. But somebody with a refrigerator full of food and you find out about a family that doesn't have anything to eat, the biblical expression of love isn't to call somebody else, it's to take the food you have, if you have it, and help them. First John over and over talks about showing love for God by your love for others. First John 3.17 says, But whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him... How does the love of God abide in him? Verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. 
Now the way to live this out in our lives are endless. Many of you are already doing it. Keep doing it. That's, that's the exhortation. Don't give up. We're not doing these things because we get something back. If you're giving to people hoping that one day they're going to give to you, you're giving for the wrong reason. You're not earning up credits in an account that you can draw down later. No, you're just doing this because you love Jesus. Around Lakeside, there's countless ways to do this. There's a widow's work day frequently. I think several times a year you can get involved. We have a benevolent offering every time we take communion. Contribute to that. When somebody's sick or in the hospital, if you can, don't just call the pastors, although certainly let us know. You go visit them. On and on it goes. The possibilities are endless. And if you're showing love, keep showing love. This should characterize how you live. This shouldn't be an afterthought. And this is love that should be present. And so again, I tell you to look in the mirror. If there's no evidence of this at all in your life, you've got to question what kind of love do you have in your heart? Now again, all of us have times where we've walked back and we've looked at something and said, man, I should have done that. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty because we failed. What I am trying to suggest to you, though, is there should be some examples where you said, wow, I really did. The Lord used me. I was able to show love in that way. I think in my own life, some of the most humbling times have been when other people reached out to offer help when I didn't ask for help. Because I'm a prideful man and you'll wait a long time for me to ask for help. But other people saw that I had a need and they stepped up. Those are the types of things that should be present in your life. So first, love should already exist. Second, love should already be manifested. And and finally, and it's obvious from the language, love must be ongoing. Not should be, love must be ongoing. It's a command. Everything I'm talking about, everything this scripture is talking about is not a one-time act. This isn't a circumstance where you say, well, I remember that one time back in 1973 I helped that person, so I'm covered. Now that's a long time ago. It should be characteristic of our life. We don't always have the same opportunities to help. And at different times in our life, the help that we can offer might look differently. I don't think it would be a secret, but I used to make more money than I make now. We could help people in a different way then. Debbie was working, I was an attorney. Guess what? We can still show love, we just can't show love in the same way. Because our life is different. So I'm not trying to make you feel guilty if your circumstances change. The point is, though, at different times, God may give you different gifts. When you're younger, you can use your physical energies. When you get older, you can't lift things. So maybe that's when you become a prayer warrior. Or maybe that's when your ministry is different. The point is, throughout your life, this should and must be characteristic. I've heard expressed in Christian circles at times, and I'm thinking of a particular circumstance a couple of churches ago, where a particular person said, well, I've already done my turn. It's a dangerous thing for a Christian to say. Your turn's never up. As long as we have life and breath, we've got something to do. Now, granted, I understand, again, there's seasons in life and our ministries change, But if you ever approach Christianity as thing, well, I can't wait till I can retire from my Christianity, you've got the wrong perspective. There are so many examples of this that I could show, but there's multiple examples in this room of people that I know 
want it to be ongoing. They're structuring their lives so that they can minister more, not less, as they get older. In all of this, it comes from a heart attitude. It's a hard attitude I struggle with because I'm as selfish as anyone. I'm as concerned with my own comfort and my own desires as anyone. The reality of the gospel in my life is displayed by how often in my own heart I'm fighting against the desire to do for me. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 really expresses a heart attitude that I think has direct applicability to how do we let the love of the brethren continue? How does this become an ongoing lifestyle? Philippians 2, 3, and 4, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Brothers and sisters, that's contrary to the American dream. The American dream is about building your kingdom, and I love America. But it's amazing what advertising does. I could sing countless different products, from beer to everything else from my childhood, that I still remember the songs from the commercials. But the, if you remember way back when the Burger King commercials, have it your way, have it your way. No, that's not Christianity. That's not. And yet that's what we can lapse into because we all want it our way. Let me assure you, if you are focused primarily on your comfort and your needs, you're never going to let love of the brethren continue. Because you're caught up in love of self. We all have preferences. We all have stylistic desires And I'm not saying that the pursuit of those are necessarily wrong. What I am saying is that no matter where you are, whether it's at Lakeside, whether you're somewhere else, what should happen is there should be a natural kindred love that you have for other Christians, such that you'll sacrifice for them, such that you'll give them what they need, such that you'll care for them. And we do this simply because we're family. Because Jesus gave to us, we give to others. Because God loved us, we love others. I've thought many times over the years when I've met Christians that annoyed me that I've got to be careful because they're going to be in heaven with me one day. Now, granted, they're not going to annoy us in heaven. The reality is the reason they won't annoy me in heaven is because my heart will finally be perfectly fixed. But that's why we love. That's why we sacrifice. Is it possible that you'll give and give and give and then wind up getting nothing in return? Absolutely. In an earthly sense. But the rewards you're earning in heaven never go away. It's not a financial transaction on earth, but it's an eternal lifestyle that is reflective of the fact that God has showered upon you as his child infinite blessings for all eternity. Our love for one another is just an expression and a giving back of those blessings to others. Let me encourage you. I want you to be nice to one another. I want to be nice to other people. But sometimes we mistake friendliness for love. You can be the most friendly and outgoing person in the world and have a selfish heart. 
You can be one of those that with all sincerity says to somebody who's in need and you have tons of money in your bank account, hey, I'll be praying for you when what you should be doing is writing a check. Again, I understand the struggle we all face because I still face it. I can tell you when I wake up and like today and I don't feel well, I'm not thinking of other people and I need to. It's by God's grace that even in those moments we can see him because when we're not feeling well we can justify our selfishness. So let me encourage you. I could go around this room and look people in the eye and tell you times where I've seen you express this love and I praise the Lord for it. I have felt this love myself from many of you and I have watched you show this love to one another. Simple truth of Chapter 13, verse 1, keep doing it. Keep doing it. Let me close our time with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love of Christ. Lord, we thank you for those times that we can look back on where you moved in our hearts to cause us to do the right thing. Lord, when you caused us to be sacrificial with our time or you caused us to be sacrificial with our resources, Lord, our innate natural state as sinners is selfishness. And Lord, we thank you that even though we still are selfish and we still struggle against selfishness, we can see in our midst examples of selflessness. Lord, I thank you for the countless examples I've seen throughout my life of people who put others' interests before their own. I pray that you'll help me be like them. Lord, I thank you for the brothers and sisters in this Sunday school class that have lived that way and they're an example to me. And Lord, I thank you and I pray that you'll help me be like them. And Lord, I pray for each one of us that we will be transparent and open about our needs so that we can show one another love. Lord, I thank you for Lakeside. I thank you for Faith Builder Sunday School class. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters who are such a blessing to me and are, who are a great witness to the world of the reality of the gospel. Lord, I just pray that you'll help us to continue. And it's always possible, Lord, that there are some in our midst who don't truly know Jesus Christ. Lord, I understand that it's possible for unbelievers to do kind things. It's possible for unbelievers to be helpful and generous. Lord, I pray that we would never rest in our actions, as important as they are, Lord. I pray that no one would be deceived into thinking their acts of kindness are what get them a ticket to heaven. I pray, Lord, that we would not have people in our midst who have fooled themselves. And if we do, I pray that you would open their eyes today to the reality of Jesus Christ. Lord, we love you, and we thank you for the opportunities you give us to show love to one another, and we pray that we will continue to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.